0: Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for your Son, our Saviour. Is by His blood we are forgiven. Uh, we know all our hope is in His blood. We know through that this forgiveness comes and through forgiveness we can uh, be known as your people, that we can gather with you, that we can hear your voice and know that we are loved by you. And so we pray, Father, assured of your forgiveness because of His blood, that you would give us humble hearts now as you speak. Speak to us, we pray. And change us. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're live streaming uh, again from uh, the church's new building that we completed together last year. And when we started the project together back in 2017, I had a particular goal in mind, a moment that I was looking forward to at the, the end of the process when we would get together as a whole church family and we would fill this room together as we gathered as God's people and we Uh, brought our prayers before him and we sang to him as we heard his voice and then um, my hope was that we'd uh, stick around and we'd celebrate together with a meal. Uh, Almost a year after opening we're still waiting for that moment where we can all all be together in the one building and I'm still looking forward to it. But as I read Nehemiah 8 this week I was struck by the wisdom uh, that God has in making us wait. Uh, making us wait to use the building in that way. It, it actually helps us remember the why of this building, why we built this building. Uh, Nehemiah 8 gets to the why of buildings like this that God's people gather in, and we see in it uh, the pattern of what happens when people, uh, when God's people gather, when he gathers them together. And, and from that, I hope together we're going to see the why of our church, uh, whether we're gathering remotely as we are this morning, whether we're gathering... Uh, with distance rules that may come in the months to come, whatever it is as the future uh, comes for us as a church, uh, this chapter helps us see the why of those gatherings. And so as we look at Nehemiah 8 together, here's my question. Uh, Halfway through the book of Nehemiah, and that's where we are, why does Nehemiah not end at the end of chapter 7? If you do read chapters 6 and 7, uh, you see there the, the final moments of the wall being completed. All the, we're told all the gaps are closed up. Uh, the wall is finished. Uh, they enjoy the fact that they've finished this big building project. Why not finish there? Because to be honest, a lot of the commentary around the book of Nehemiah seems to focus on building projects and uh, leadership strategies to get a project completed. And at this point, the project is completed. Why does the book go on? We're only halfway through it and yet this building project is done. Well, here's why. It is because of the why of God's people gathering together, the why of our place too. It is only as the building of the wall is finished uh, that the real building project begins. It's as if the building of the wall, and indeed for us the building of this building, is just the scaffolding of what God is really doing with his people. Here's what he is doing. He is building a people not a building. He is building a people and he continues to build them today. And so two things we're going to see from Nehemiah chapter 8, what, what God's building in, uh, of his people involves, what's involved when he, when he builds them and secondly this, what happens when he does build us. And Let's look at each of those in turn and if you've got the outline you'll see these points on there. Firstly, what God's building of his people involves. Now have a look, uh, the wall is finished, and we turn the page to chapter 8, verse 1, and we read this. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the, the teacher of the Lord, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. Now, even in this opening verse, there's a, a, a few things to observe. Uh, firstly, uh, what, what happens when God goes about his building project? Uh, here's the first thing that happens, he gathers his people. Uh, way back in Genesis chapter 11, uh, we saw the, the human project to gather themselves together, the, uh, the Tower of Babel. They said, we don't want to be scattered anymore. Let's gather together and let's build this tower. And, and, but in the end, it was a human project about human self-exaltation. Let's make a name for ourselves, they said. And in judgment, in Genesis 11, God thwarts that gathering and thwarts that building project. And in fact, his judgment is to scatter them not to gather them. And really, if you trace the Bible story all the way from Genesis 11 up to the point we're in in Nehemiah 8, and really right to the very end, uh, the Bible tells the big story of God's plan to reverse the effects of that human sin and human self-glorification. It, it, it tells the story of how uh, God, who had scattered us in judgment, will eventually regather his people with him, as we saw in Revelation 21. Revelation 21. And all the way through salvation history, we see the movement towards that moment. Uh, As God's people are rescued from slavery in Egypt, uh, the very first thing that happens after that rescue is they are gathered together by God at Sinai. And as uh, Jesus himself describes humanities, he looks over the city of Jerusalem. He he says that they're scattered and and lost. And and in John chapter 10, uh, he promises this, I'm the good shepherd. I've come to gather the sheep. I've come to bring them back together with me. Again, tracing this thread all the way through salvation history, we're told in Ephesians 2 that the church that God is building by the gospel of the Lord Jesus is all about bringing those who are far away near again, those who are separated and divided, making them one with him. And this gathering on display that God is building, his church, Ephesians 3 verse 10 says it's so central to what God is doing in this world that in chapter 3, verse 10 of Ephesians, he says he's putting that gathering on display to the universe to say that he is wise and victorious. This is his master plan. And so Nehemiah 8, verse 1, is a key moment in that glorious work that God is doing through salvation history. Firstly, it's a gathering, and that should remind us this is right at the heart of God's purposes. Second thing to notice from verse 1 is it's a public gathering. I wonder if you noticed that in verse 1. They're not gathered where we might expect God's people to be gathered, at, 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 say the temple, no, there they are in the public square. This gathering of God's people is not to be a secret sect hidden away from the world, it's, it's a public gathering, it's, it's an open gathering and, and the same is true now for his church. In the fulfillment of his gathering promise, that, the, that is the church of Jesus Christ, we are, well, we saw it last week, Jesus says, you're to be a city on the hill, you're meant to be obvious, this gathering. You're, you're a light to the world, you don't hide it under a basket, it, it should be seen, it's, it's public, it's obvious, it's meant to be accessible. It's a gathering, it's a public gathering, and again, verse 1, it's an inclusive and united gathering. Uh, two things here from verse 1. Uh, we're told in the verse, uh, literally it says, they gather as one, literally as one person, as if one man is gathering there with God. And now by this stage, if, if you look back in chapter 7, there's about 50,000 of them, and yet we're told here that they're, they're united, they're, they're gathered as one. And God gathers a people who are, well, the New Testament tells us, are like a body, They are meant to be united. They are meant to function as one. And that should strike you as you think about what it means to be one of God's people. If you are a person of God, it means that you gather with God's people. That's what it means to be one of his people. It means uh, it's a corporate identity. And that should impact how we approach gathering. We don't gather for just ourselves. We gather as a people. And verse 2 of uh, Nehemiah chapter 8, it says it's for all comers. Do you see it there? Men and women and those old enough to understand, which is really code for children, but they're all gathered together. All comers in the sense also that, uh, well, if you look down at verse 8, uh, by now the exiles who are coming back into Jerusalem, they've come from different places where there are different languages. And, and so, well, the obvious happens in Nehemiah 8, there's translation as... God's word is spoken in this gathering so that everyone is included. And again, that has implications for our gatherings too. Do you see the why of God's place? It is like nothing else on earth, this thing that he is building, his church. It's united. It's inclusive. It's, it's gathering as one. And it does fly in the face of the, the fragility of human unity. I mean, we're, we're not good at unity, I mean, take, for instance, even, even COVID has managed to sort of divide the states of Australia. There, it seems like there's a daily update where they throw rocks at each other. Our unity is paper thin. But what God is building is a substantial unity because it's built around him. The church is a miraculous place. It brings, uh, Ephesians tells us, those who are far away together again. A, a place where, well, in the words of 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, he is sewing us together so that we are of one mind. One thought. Now, I don't know what you think when you hear that phrase, being of one mind. It sounds a bit dangerous, doesn't it? This sort of group think. Uh, Surely that's not good. But groups in our world unite over all sorts of things, unite in their thoughts over all sorts of things. Even churches can do that. Uh, But have a look at what unites their thoughts. Here in Nehemiah 8, again, verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate, And they told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. It's the word of the Lord that unites their thoughts. It's not my word that should unite our church. It's not your word that should unite our church, nor even our corporate word together. It's the word of the Lord that forms our thoughts and our minds. And so a couple of implications from that. It means this. Firstly, in this gathering, which is God's people, the church, his word is our passion, our central passion. Now, don't be fooled. Sometimes when when Christians say this church is all about the Bible, it can be uh, said as an accusation. They're too Bible-centric. They're Bible worshippers, that church. But that is to misunderstand that the only way God makes himself known, that is relationally known, is that he speaks. He speaks this word that we may know him. It's why the psalmist can say unashamedly and repeatedly in the psalms, I love your word, Lord. And the reason he loves it is that by it he sees God's face. And so do you see the people in Nehemiah 8 verse 1, they cry, bring out the book. Bring out the book as the gathering begins. Uh, It's quite a moment. I imagine that as a a preacher in in church, as as we get together, if that was the chant that started in church, bring out the book, preacher man. Keep going. We want to know God. It's a passion that shows itself not just in the word being read, but also in it being preached and taught. Do you see that in Nehemiah 8 verses 3 to 5? Uh, There's a whole bunch of preachers up there. They they went from uh, sunrise to noon preaching, a whole bunch of them. And do you see the people's response, verse 3? They listened attentively. I want to ask you, when you think about what it means to gather as church, even virtually like this, as you sit there in your lounge room or wherever you are right now, is your passion as we gather this? Is your passion that we bring out the book? that we open this word together. Do you realize what we are hearing as we hear it together? In the words of 1 Thessalonians 2.13, it's not the words of men, it's the word of God. May God grow in us this hunger, this passion for his word. And with that in mind, I, I do want to encourage you, uh, I think a couple of years ago we gave away a bunch of these. There's a little book by Christopher Ash called Listen Up. And it's really designed to help with what, what, what verse 3 talks about, listening attentively growing our hunger and our passion for God's word. It's even got tips of how to listen to a boring sermon. Now, it might be too late for this morning, but, but for future weeks, it's well worth getting. And as, as an option, I've put a dozen of these in the church letterbox on Water Street. If you're walking by or driving by, feel free to grab one of those. And if all of them disappear, I'll, I'll get more. Uh, a great little uh, resource to help with listening and being hungry for God's word. But here's the second thing, the second implication from being people of the book. Uh, in his gathering, God's word is meant to be understood. I wonder if you notice that emphasis on understanding as we read the chapter. Verse 2, men and women and all who were able to understand. Again verses 7 and 8, the Levites, uh, I won't read all their names, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there and then verse 8, they read from the book of the law of God making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read and I reckon you see in verses 7 and 8 the why uh, we have as a church small groups, Uh, it's almost like two sides of a coin, there's there's the, the preaching that's going on in verse 4 in this, on this wooden pulpit, a platform built for the occasion. And, and then it seems amongst the people in smaller groups, there are other people helping the people to think through what is being taught, helping them to understand it, helping them to apply it. Now, in our case, so the way we try to go about this pattern is to hear the word together on Sundays and then to dig into it even further during the week it's it's like Sunday is the big splash of hearing God's word together and then we want the ripples of that to follow us into the week into our lives into our conversations with each other in our groups and and the goal is deep understanding the goal is growing in our hunger for this word and so why is understanding so important well it's because the word that God speaks is actually purposed to bring change and so that's the second big thing that we see in Nehemiah 8. We see what happens when God's people hear his word and when they understand his word. And really from that, uh, I want to pick up four things, that, uh, four changes that this word brings about. Here's the first of them, and, and we spoke about this earlier in the service. You'll know you're understanding God's word if it's growing in you an awe for him. Verse 5, Nehemiah chapter 8, as this word is opened, the people stand up. It's instinctive as they hear God's word being opened and spoken. There's nothing casual about it. They're not slouching on their seats, scrolling through social media on their screens. When the book is opened, the king is in the house and he is speaking. And so we stand. If we are casual before God's word, then perhaps we've forgotten who's speaking to us. And the only way to change that is to listen carefully again as he speaks. Because he, he will reveal himself and as he reveals himself, we will see he is awesome. And I know that my job as a preacher is simply to get out of the way enough so that we can hear him speak and that we can see him and that we grow in awe of him as a result. But the more our awe grows, the more something else will grow with it. Here's the second change. You'll know you're understanding God's word when it's growing in you a grief over your sin. As we see his holiness, as we see his greatness, it should floor us as it does this people in Nehemiah 8. We see how far short we fall of his glory. We we see that we have no right to be gathered with him, even though we are. We we see that we're rent through with sin. His word will reveal that to us. Uh, Do you see the people in verse 9? They're weeping over their sin. They're weeping as they hear this word. It means they get it. It means they understand the word of the Lord. They're like uh, uh, Peter in the boat with Jesus in, in Luke chapter 5. As he sees Jesus for who he truly is in that boat, he simply says this, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. It's like uh, the words of uh, Isaiah the prophet and Isaiah 6 as he sees God's glory, woe to me, I am undone. That's what understanding God's word will do. It will expose our sin and it should grieve us. You know, some of the more modern confessions that uh, we pray as a church and churches pray around the world uh, lose some of the sense of the grief of this. So listen to this prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, the old prayer book. We do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us. But that's not where the word leaves us. It doesn't just leave us grieving sin. Have a look at verse 12. See where the people end up. Verse 12, all the people went away to eat and drink to celebrate with with great joy because they now understood the words that have been made known to them. They've moved from grief to joy. You see, the more we understand God's word to us, the more it will lead to this place, the more it will lead to joy. And here's why, and this is crucial to hear when thinking about uh, hearing and understanding God's word. The greatest reality that God's word will reveal to us is not my unworthiness nor my guilt, but God's grace to me, a sinner. Here's the pattern of his word. Uh, Those he humbles, he also lifts up. Uh, we, we looked at the book of Hebrews earlier in the year and, and one of my favourite passages in Hebrews is Hebrews 4 where the, you see this balance. And earlier in Hebrews 4 we're, we're told that the word of God is living and active and it, it divides right to the heart of us and it exposes our sin. And it, it finds us completely out and we should grieve our sin as we see it. But do you know what happens next in, in Hebrews 4? We're told that this same God then gives us a brother in the Lord Jesus who gets it and who will represent us. And so we have nothing to fear because he offers gracious, timely help. That's where God's word leads us. It leads us to the joy of forgiveness. You know, the easiest trick in the preacher handbook is making a congregation feel bad about themselves. Uh, Some feel that, you know, they've not heard a proper sermon unless they leave feeling really bad. But that's not where God's word leads, if we're understanding it. You see that in verse 9, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. Verse 10 again, This day is holy to our Lord. Don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is a joy not built in us. It only comes from knowing what God has done with our sin. Why? Again, because the greatest reality his word will reveal to us is not me or my guilt or my unworthiness, but his grace to me, a sinner in the Lord Jesus Uh, Book of Romans chapter 7 verse 24, the Apostle Paul uh, explains this perfectly. He says, what a wretched man I am. There's the grief over sin. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And then this, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's the joy. This word prompts joy and feasting and celebration as we see there in verse 12. And uh, if you look carefully in the passage, it's a celebration open to all. Do you see the instruction in verse 10? Even if people have got nothing to bring to the party, make sure there's food for them as well. This is, this is for all comers, even if you don't feel you belong. I was struck uh, a week or so ago when the Olympics were on and the, the Australian the high jumper Nicola McDermott won the silver medal and, and uh, afterwards she was giving an interview and, and really it was a testimony because she is someone who understands this word. She is one of God's people. But here's what she said about that. And it reminded me of this picture in verse 10 of uh, anybody can come. She said, as a teenager, I was an outcast. And then I got welcomed into a church that loved me. And I just remember encountering God's love and it changed the way I thought about myself forever. I know I am loved by God and that's who I am as I jump. Now, the strong joy of our identity is this, that we belong to him because of his grace. We're welcome, not because of who we are, but because of what he has done. And one final change our understanding of this word will bring. It will bring a joyful longing for a home that is yet to come. You see there, verse 13, there's more teaching from God's word that takes place. And as they're taught, it seems, verse 14, that they discover something new or perhaps something they've forgotten. And that's part of the thrill of opening the Bible as we do on Sundays and in our small groups. There's always something new to discover or something to re- be renewed in our minds and our hearts. And they, what they remember on this particular day is an old festival, the festival of the tents. God's people in the land were commanded to make these temporary shelters, to remember that they were still on their journey home. They weren't there yet. It was true in the exodus as they were rescued from Egypt, as they walked through the wilderness. That was the reality. They knew they were on their way home. And it was true even in the land as they celebrated being in the land. They celebrated the journey so far, but also the journey yet to come. It's true in the exile as these people had recently experienced as they were scattered again from the land. And it's true even now as they're back in the land, they are still to remember they're still on their way home. Each time they gathered, they were to rejoice at how good it was to gather as God's people and remember the joy of the forever gathering that was yet to come. Remembering that moment that we've been thinking about as we've gone through this series in Revelation 21 when we'll leave the tent and we'll enter God's city. This festival says, don't forget, we're still on our way home. I mean, what a sight that must have been. If, if you look there in verse 16, there's tents in the middle of houses. There's tents on people's roofs. There's tents in the middle of uh, the town hall steps. You, you name it, there's tents everywhere. They would have looked ridiculous. And so should we. Church, we are not yet home. Sydney is not our city, not forever anyway. We are meant to live like that. We are meant to live like those who know home is yet to come. And the only way that lifestyle will grow in us is by hearing and understanding this future hope that God speaks to us in his word. Remember last year when we were thinking about one of the key parts of who we are as a, are as a church, which is longing for home. I, I told this story that I came across on ABC radio. I'll, te, I'll tell, it, tell it again as we finish. Uh, it was a lady called Lorna Ash who was trying to... Um, Uh, sort of retrace her Cornish roots in in Cornwall and so she went out on a Cornish fishing boat, uh, the sort of long trips they go out on Uh, and this is what happened. Uh, The Cornish boats leave for weeks at a time and the fishermen found it hard being away from home and so she described how they handled it. There's this sense of keeping the land at an arm's distance while you're still out at sea. Because otherwise thoughts of home might overwhelm you. But finally on the last day of the journey, there's this sort of jubilation that takes over on board because you don't have to hold the land back anymore because you can see home and so the singing starts and the laughing and the dancing. In those last hours, you get to allow the anticipation of home to overwhelm you. Now here's what I'm struck by as I, I, I think about that quote and I think about what we're reading here in Nehemiah 8. God says to his people, don't hold the land back think about what's to come, think about home, let that drive you and when we do, do you see what happens in 8 verse 17? It feels like joy, very great joy and so church let us be his people together, gathered together, gathered in public, inviting all who would come, seeking to understand as he speaks so that as he speaks our wonder of him will grow Our grief over our sin will grow, but also our joy at his grace and our forgiveness. And our hearts will be set firmly on our home yet to come with him. Now, In a moment, uh, we'll uh, hear our next song. I'm going to pray before that. And after the song, I have an important announcement to make. So let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. We long to be people of the book. We long to be hungry for it and to understand it and to have it change us. Please do that great work in us, we pray. Amen.